See a big sign at the side of the road. It means 15 miles to the love shack. Love shack, baby. Love shack, baby. I've got me a Chrysler. It's as big as a whale, and it's about to set sail. Got me a Chrysler, it seats about 20, so come along and bring your jukebox money. The Love Shack is a little known place where we can get together. Love Shack, baby. Love Shack, baby. The sign says, stay away, fools, because love rules at the Love Shack. <clears throat> All right, we're live. Wait for some people to fiddle in here. If you see a big sign, the sign of Heinz says, stay away, fools. That's love rules at the love shack. Around and around and around and around. And everybody's grooving, baby. Folks lining up outside just to get down. Funky little shack. Funky little shack. Okay, so today... I'm going to finish, we're going to do chapter nine, this book, talking chapter nine, chapter nine, which is titled Hiding in Plain Sight, the Indigenous Origins of Social Housing and Democracy in the Americas. Got to say right off the bat, that hits the ear bad because origins implies a continuity, right? And I just don't think that you can draw any continuity between whatever the hell he's talking about in this chapter and modern schemes of social housing. And I think that's a general problem with the entire, frankly, the entire uh, project here is attempting to uh, imagine a continuous chain of influence uh, reaching from these uh, pre-modern, uh, I'm trying to think, like, it's, it's a prehistorical, not really, they have, le they have, uh, they have writing. Some of them do, anyway. But uh, certainly not a lot of writing. But like these these uh, things, and you know, modern notions of liberty and freedom. Because he's he's trying to argue that you know that uh, rather than emerging from a process uh, of you know mo modernization uh, that. Uh, ideas that we think of as modern uh, ideas of liberty and justice and whatnot uh, and freedom uh, have their basis in these uh, these early human settlements. Pre-Columbian, I guess that works too. Uh, and as I said, I don't know if that's really the case. 
a lot of it ended up hinging on his whole deal with, you know, uh, uh, European, the, the Enlightenment being kindled by this interaction with uh, indigenous cultures in uh, North America. And it does seem like he's kind of getting, they're kind of getting to making that argument that there's like this circular uh, transmission whereby, you know, uh, icky, hierarchical, property relations erupt in uh, Eurasia. Uh, and then, you know, uh, in, in the New World, in, in the, the Americas, uh, these traditions of uh, autonomy and, 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 and uh, democracy have survived. And that when they interact with one another, uh, it's when that's what causes... Uh, European civilization to start to look inward and ask questions about what it really values. And honestly, even if it's true, I don't know what you do with the fact that they just got fucking owned. They got owned so fucking bad. All of these uh, traditions that they that they seek to point out at some point in history, get just steamrolled permanently with no recovery. And uh, I just, I have to believe that there, that that has uh, implications that uh, they just don't want to seem to really dwell on because it challenges the idea that we're all really just like a mind, uh, a mind uh, set, a phase shift in, in mental, you know, uh, framing away from just recreating these social uh, or organizational structures uh, in, you know, the, the wreckage of modernity that we're living in. So in this chapter, Grabgro, uh, after talking about early uh, democratic or quasi-democratic uh, governing structures in urban areas in Eurasia, uh, moved to Mesoamerica, specifically into the Central America and Yucatan Peninsula uh, area, where, uh, where of course, by uh, the which are ruled by the sixteenth uh, century, fourteenth century, fifteenth century by uh, the Aztecs, which were then, of course, uh, overthrown by the Spanish. Uh, But what Grabgro want to point out is that before the uh, hegemony of the of the Aztec Empire, which is of course you know a very brutal hierarchical social structure that involved you know slavery and mass fucking human sacrifice, um, there were other models of social uh, relationships in uh, that area, and specifically the uh, Aztecs themselves. Uh, were inspired in the construction of their uh, their capital of Tenochtitlan uh, by a abandoned at that point the time they were moving through the the the, uh, the Mexa Valley there uh, uh, a city that the uh, Aztecs referred to as, as the city of the gods because it was had these monumental uh, architectural structures, but was totally abandoned, called uh, Teotihuacan. I believe that's it. Teotihuacan. Teotihuacan. I'll, I'll go with Teotihuacan. That'll work. Uh, 
which was inhabited, uh, estimated from 100 BC to 600 AD. So you got a good uh, 700 year period where you have this area is settled in a urban space. And it's a very weird uh, uh, site. So it's, it, it, it defies a lot of architectural of archaeological expectations because it has some, as I said, monumental architecture. It's got two huge pyramids, uh, the Pyramid of the Sun, what the Aztecs called it, and the Pyramid of the Moon. And it's got a big uh, open plaza with a, that, that fronted a, uh, a temple, a temple to the feathered serpent. Uh, Mesoamericans, they love the feathered serpents. Big on those. And, but it also has this weird layout of like apartment blocks, basically, all around it. With no uh, signs of you know the sort of social uh, stratification that you see in other uh, early uh, urban settlements, and Grabgro point out that this seeming uh, perplexity is sort of resolved if you look at the structure uh, chronologically. The first thing to be built, the first thing that lasts, the thing uh, that be built anyway, were these. Fucking uh, giant structures, the the pyramids and and the the temple, uh, but at a point in the history of the city, uh, the temple was uh, raided, smashed. The idols were destroyed. Uh, they, they they did a Saddam Hussein pull down of the feathered serpent statues, uh, and after that, you see the build this explosion in social housing, basically where they start building these relatively uh, equal, even-sized uh, apartment complexes, like one-floor apart- story apartment complexes with like a hundred so uh, people uh, in one, what you'd call a neighborhood, uh, which were all decorated a different, you know, like uh, what, what Grabgro referred to as psychedelic murals. Uh, and you see in these areas uh, no signs of kingdom or ruledom. Uh, this, the Images of people, everyone's the same size, which is very rare. Usually you'll see uh, one big guy to represent, you know, the god and, and then the king that, that the, the god speaks through. Here, everybody's the same size. Uh, essentially, everyone is uh, vibing uh, in the block. And Grab Girl paint this, this narrative where you had a classic uh, human sacrifice-based because this is another thing that you see is evidence of human sacrifice, bodies being, uh, you know, people being decapitated and their bodies being sort of uh, arranged in uh, patterns in the, uh, again, the foundation of buildings, you know, that kind of thing. And that stops the same time that the uh, temple gets destroyed and uh, doesn't happen anymore once uh, this move towards social housing building has happened. And the picture that they that they tell is one where you have this this classical uh, civilization of, of brutal hierarchy and ritualized domination overthrown from within, and literally the gods being pulled from their fucking uh, from their platforms and uh, and smashed, uh, and that in the wreckage of that, uh, the people democratically coming together uh, to provide for each other collectively by building this structures of social housing, which 
while they were roughly the same size, were not exactly the same size, and all of which were decorated in distinct ways and uh, involved plenty of uh, diversity, not just uh, in styles, but also ethnicity. Uh, they say that there were quarters here for uh, people from different tribes in different parts of uh, uh, Mexico and, 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 the cent- and, the, and Central America. And this is, this is where uh, I really felt, from when I was a uh, young anarchist, I felt a real, like, tingle as I remember reading about, like, you know, other moments in time like this that you can kind of freeze and, and, and then texture and create a, 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 a vision of, like, an alternative human potential. And, like, they're... With this, with this description, they're filling in a lot of fucking gaps with what they want there to have been, right? Because they don't fucking know. Like, it's a persuasive collection of evidence, but that's because they're collecting it. It might be very much less persuasive being collected by somebody else with different priors. But anyway, like, you do have the reality of this very unusual social housing, and you have the reality of the destruction of this temple complex. So you have the every tool at your disposal to build this story of, of a period, a, a little idol where, where people were able to organize themselves, did not need gods or masters, uh, and, and were able to provide for each other collectively, which is, you know, the dream of all of the entire uh, left in any respect. You know, it's, this is what, this is, if not like the teleology, like an end stage, it is, the it is the possibility, the potentiality that moves you forward. Because if you can see it in your mind, if you can imagine it really happening, and especially if you can animate a period of history, even if it's a, a moment, uh, with that, with those values, uh, a time when those values governed and did do the things that uh, reactionary social culture tells you, reactionary social Assumptions tell you cannot happen. It it, it keeps you focused. You know it 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 it, it sharpens and, and directs your political action because what else is to be sought but that? In my view, like the, any of the schemes of of like natural hierarchy of the right, all end in obliteration. They have to. And all they end up doing is romanticizing that annihilation and obliteration, that death drive, and, and, and finding some apotheosis in it. But, you know, it's, uh, it's sick. It's a sickness unto death, and, and, uh, and it's, not worth move, it's not worth trying to preserve uh, or defend or, or, uh, or validate, you know? But at the same time, it, it strikes me of, of how how much of yourself and how much of your uh, your desire of how you want things to be inflects this. Because I remember reading about the Spanish Civil War, you know, when I was like in my early 20s. And, and reading about the July days when everyone knew in the city that the soldiers were going to come out of their barracks. And they spontaneously organized to resist them. And. You had cab drivers uh, welding uh, 
sheet metal to the side of their cabs to make them into improvised armored cars. And you had uh, uh, athletes who were in Barcelona for a uh, socialist alternative to the Olympics Olympics in Munich, which many uh, uh, left-wing athletes had boycotted, just grabbing guns and going out into the, the barricades. And then when, sure enough, that next morning they, they came out of their barracks, they got fucking owned. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the the, the uh, collectivization of agriculture uh, in the, uh, the Catalonian and Andalusian countryside. You know, not, not a Stalinesque nightmare, but a spontaneous expression uh, of uh, rural solidarity. You go to a village, the story of going to a village in, in revolutionary Spain there's a, uh, that has abolished money and abolished the value form, and there's a, there's a, a poster that says John Rockefeller could come in here to this city and he wouldn't be able to buy a single cup of coffee. You read about that, and uh, it gives you, yes, a sense of what could be and, uh, and a desire to see, to, to put some effort into making it happen. What's going on? What happened? What is, why? Can you not see me? Can you not hear me? What's going on? It's normal? You can't do that to me, people. Okay. But at the same time, as fun as it is to read, and as important as it is, as it is is from a morale and spiritual perspective. uh, At the end of the day, though, what's it got to do with the price of beans, you know? Like, how does any of this uh, deal, how does any of this uh, relate to the question of organizing towards power in the time that we live in? A time when all of these possibilities have been wiped out and a totalizing capitalism uh, a totalizing regime of technological alienation uh, has defined human existence in a way that makes us as beings metaphysically distinct from the beings that are being described in this book. And that's a question that I don't think that there's a lot of answers to that come, you know, in, in, in this literature. So then... So, Greg Rowe talked a lot about this this city and it, how it very well might have been this this little island of uh, of mutualism in a sea of of burdening uh, like death cults and and, and uh, you know murder uh, empires. Uh, they also point out the weird uh, phenomenon of people from this city, Teotihuacans. Uh, becoming like stranger kings in areas to the south of the city, uh, suggesting that if you wanted to be a king, if you wanted to, to rule over others, you essentially couldn't do it in the city and you had to go somewhere else. You were, uh, you were like an adventurer, a vagabond, or a, or a merchant. Uh, you very well might take uh, the skills of governing and, and you know, uh, Asserting authority and asserting uh, power that you learned in the democratic democratic uh, tumult of of the city, and 
apply it to uh, polities that expected hierarchy and expected, uh, and, and in fact could not function without uh, like monarchical domination. And then the, the second half of the chapter is actually funny in a way because uh, the entire thing is a argument that the uh, God damn it, I hate I gotta say they're the toughest languages for me are the Mesoamerican ones. The Tlaxcala, the guys who helped Cortez, the tribe, the tribe who, when uh, Cortez showed up with his uh, vagabond bond of Spaniards, fought him a number of times. Uh, kept getting killed, and then decided to ally with him to overthrow the Aztecs. I know you can write it. That doesn't help me. I can read the writing. It doesn't tell me how to say it. I'm literally looking at the word here. This does not help, having it written here. Spelled the same way. It's not a spelling issue. It's a pronunciation issue. So the the whole uh, gist of this... uh, the second half of this chapter is uh, Grabgro making an argument that rather than uh, being overawed by the power of the Spaniards or uh, supernaturally suborned by a belief that they were gods or something that is like often assumed to be the case, uh, that, that this tribe uh, decided collectively and democratically to ally with uh, Cortez. And that we and that and they point out that we have uh, records, you know, from only a few generations later, uh, describing the deliberations that went on among a people who were uh, fundamentally governed by democratic uh, means, uh, similar in in most respects, at least described to uh, Europeans in a way that they recognized as like. Classic Athenian democracy. Uh, and it is kind of funny that in this book that's supposed to be uh, lauding the virtues of democratic deliberation, uh, that the one example we have so far of a decision that has come to democratically, as opposed to a process that might bring about democratic decisions, is the decision to ally with the Spaniards <laughs> to <laughs> essentially destroy uh, pre-Columbian Mexican civil and uh, Mexican civilization. That's pretty funny. Mexico. Tlaxcalacan. All right, I'm going to avoid saying it. That's the way I'm going to get around this. Like their whole thing is like, look, these guys—they didn't have a king. They weren't odd. They were they were self-contained. Uh, uh, democratic agents who came together uh, in a in a spirit of uh, equality to come to democratic conclusions about questions of state. They weren't. They didn't have anybody tell them what to do. Uh, and in in that process, they decided to help uh, literal demons like monsters. <laughs> uh, pretty funny. Uh, and it does raise some questions, you know, about like, I mean, at the end of the day, what is the benefit of this democratic model? Is it the outcomes it comes to, or is it that even if you make bad decisions that way, 
they're decisions that are broadly understood to have been collectively made, and therefore we can deal with the outcome of bad decisions because we're not riven against one of ourselves the way we are, you know, in our fake democracies where things keep getting worse. And even though we have democratic uh, systems, allegedly, and a democratic voice, uh, we never feel like we have anything to say about why things happen. And so, therefore, we have to search for scapegoats and places to sublimate our, our impotence and uh, just slowly and steadily just termite, like, destroy the interior, internal uh, like cultural support structures for democracy. So this part of the chapter, Grab, Grow, they describe how uh, this civilization uh, carried out a like a public political uh, deliberative process, had um, had a political class, people who you know uh, stood for public office, uh, but were essentially uh, hazed into it. So that it would discourage the glory seekers and the and the prima donnas and the and the uh, cynics and frauds and the sophists from trying to claim power because you'd had to really want to do it for its own sake to put up with the public ritual humiliation that politicians were required to go through. And honestly, I gotta say that is a good idea that should come back. There should be real like penitential trials that you should have to go through in order to make any attempt to uh, claim governing authority on behalf of anyone else. And this is honestly why I really do think that elections in general are wildly overrated. And I, th I, I think that a functioning, a, a truly functioning democratic polity that, of course, had abolished class rule, this is the important thing, would not have elections. Because elections are how, what you do to mask class rule. Elections are a ritual you perform to val validate class rule and to confirm its, uh, its power over the land and its necessity. I think if that it was abolished, uh, if, if there was not that constant conflict and tension within each person and between each person that is generated by class rule, then you would not need fucking stupid-ass elections. You know, uh, you'd have any any position that is technical would be done by someone who had technical expertise in it. And any uh, questions where you just basically need somebody to function as a uh, as a decision point, like in an algorithm, like a having you need somebody to say yes or no to a question. Sortion, baby. Pick names out of a fucking hat. Lottery. So he says, though imagine the selective pressures hazing our political caste would produce today. Marjorie Taylor Greene would 
uh, end up God Queen? I don't think so. I uh, I guess it means what, what you mean by hazing. I don't mean like people saying. I mean apparently for uh, the Talak Collins, they would like get politicians out in public and everyone would just uh, insult them or insult them and scream at them and call them bad names and and basically uh, read them for filth, as the kids say. But that would not work now. That's not an effective hazing now when when any attention is like fucking gamma radiation to the Hulk. It has it would have to be unpleasant. It would have to be something that uh, a a pleasure seeker, a a glory hound, would not want to experience. And the people, the thing about the thing that combines basically everybody in our political class now is that they are all doing it because they think it's a good time. They think it's fun, and they think that it uh, it's validating. I mean. I, did you guys know about how like both MGT? I don't know about MGT, but I know that Lauren Boebert and Candace Owen and a bunch of other right wing uh, politicians and influencers uh, all signed up for like one of those scam mall uh, modeling agency companies that like promises to get you work and modeling if you like pay them for headshots or something, only for like actors. They all just want to be they, they want to be famous. They want to be actors, but they don't have the talent or the looks to do it. Politics is a cheat code. I can tell you. I was able to be, carve out a career in the, quote, entertainment industry, broadly pursued, because I didn't have to rely on my, what, comedic abilities or my, uh, my intellectual bona fides. I was able to ride the wave of an uh, interest in politics and articulate a political perspective. And that does uh, so much of the work that would otherwise have to be done by the luck of your uh, birth and then, you know, residually your talent. And so these people, they all went through the back door. They went through the fucking, uh, uh, the sally port. Because why wouldn't you? And if you made politics actually unpleasant in some respect for these fucking people who are, like the rest of us, just lobotomized by our uh, most basely implanted uh, instincts towards pleasure, they would flee. They would be horrified. I mean, I don't know what it would have to be, though. Like I said, insulting them wouldn't work. They love that. It's attention. Maybe that's it. They would have to go like a year without social media or uh, like public appearance before they could apply for to run for anything. Can you imagine one of these people doing that? Do you imagine one of these people not telling everybody what they fucking think every moment of every day for even a fucking a day, let alone a year? But I got to say, though, uh, when, it comes, when it comes to this description of the Tlaqala, uh, I, have to, I can't accept fully uh, the grab-grow argument about them because they're honestly too sketchy about the political economy of their civilization. Like, they talk about how they have these, uh, you know, uh, democratic uh, assemblies and stuff, but as they point out, the thing this reminded Europeans of was Athenian democracy which, of course, we know is only possible because of fucking slavery. Now, we know that these, uh, the Tlaqans were uh, basically the only su unsubjugated 
uh, tribe in this area that was not under some sort of uh, colonial relationship to uh, the Aztecs, and in fact had to carry out like ritual warfare with the Aztecs, where they essentially had to sacrifice a number of their warriors every year to their dark rituals uh, in Teotihuacan. And according to the Aztecs, of course, that's why they were free, is because they were essentially uh, like free-range chickens. Like it was, it was easier. They were essentially part of the Aztec polity, but it was uh, much less of a hassle to just let them do their own thing, and then whenever you needed to, go in and uh, pluck out some warriors that you need because the thing runs on human blood, literally. And of course, you know that suggests that since these are you know people who would define themselves in opposition to Aztec culture, very well might eschew all elements of uh, Aztec. Domination. And I think this gets to an important uh, thing that Grabgro point out throughout this book is that these models of uh, egalitarianism do not spring up out of nowhere. They don't spring up from nature because they're very clear that they don't think there is a egalitarian state of nature in early, early humanity. I would disagree. I mean, at a certain point it breaks down, but I do think you don't get tribal human society without enforced egalitarianism at some point, especially for the simple fact that uh, anything else cannot be enforced, really, because of the ability of anybody to fucking move and leave. The inability to enforce any kind of, like, real authority over anybody else. Uh, but anyway, their argument is, is that these models of egalitarianism emerge uh, due to contact with Hierarchical structures, societies emerging, uh, you know, deifying warriors and, and creating hierarchies and, and ritually reaffirming them through violence. And those who are disaffected by that life uh, flee to the margins and then reconstruct a social order that is defines itself in opposition to all of those things. Because as outsiders, they see the, uh, the repellent features that are laundered by the, the cultural skein, uh, the rituals that uh, sanctify it. Or sometimes you have the opposite. Like in the last chapter, they talk about how uh, early egalitarian urban centers in uh, Mesopotamia uh, had little warrior kingdoms sprout out in their periphery, where you have the opposite thing happening. People repulsed by the effeteness and, and, uh, and uh, lack of martial vigor uh, among settled uh, people sitting in their, you know, uh, giant warehouse uh, temples, writing in cuneiform about how many, you know, vials of, uh, of uh, olive oil or fucking mud or whatever are going to go from one place to another. And not out there, you know, red and tooth and claw, that other thing that is, you know, part of the human animal, the need to, uh, the need to seek and dominate and hunt, you know, that, that needs to be synthesized into a, uh, you know, a settled relationship to the world around you. But you know, the form that that takes varies greatly on who you grew up around. And so their model for how egalitarian structures are 
uh, created and sustained essentially requires this dialectical relationship with other power structures, other political economies. Problem is now, though, where we live, there is no alternative. There's no space anywhere else. There's no where outside. Yet, anyway. I think the one thing, uh, I think by the end of this book, one thing that uh, I think we're go- I'm going to agree with, with GrabGrow here, is that if we're going to build alternatives to this death-spiraling capitalism, uh, it's going to be in geographic, temporally fixed places outside of it. And of course, the bad news, though, is that the places that are going to be outside of it are only going to be outside of it because of a tactical retreat by capitalism. A uh, a decision to cut off the limb, like somebody with diabetes sawing off their feet. And creating, essentially, post-apocalyptic uh, landscapes. And if anything is going to emerge contrary to this, it's going to be there. The problem is is that it's going to be all those places, the people in them, the people who will be in them, are people who have still uh, been shaped by the conflicts and the, uh, the categories uh, of that global capitalism. And that's a challenge, and it has, it's going to have to be resolved. And the thing that will resolve it, I think, like at the truest level, will, will just be the, yeah, the, the will towards uh, survival. Because some people are going to come to the realization that's, that cooperation in such a context is the only real way to secure Survival. And that that alternative to capitalism might never have anything to do with the destruction of capitalism, the overthrowing of capitalism, which would collapse from within through its own contradictions. Until the entire globe is, you know, this massive junkyard covered with people sifting through wreckage and trying to build things out of it. And then, you know, uh, a couple of uh, people, a couple of dead bodies with like uh, Ethernet cords jammed in the back of their uh, heads because they thought they were downloading their consciousness into a fucking MacBook. And then like one factory left that just keeps perfecting and releasing like synthetic versions of a spicy, crispy chicken sandwich. Because if you look at capitalism right now, the only place where you see any innovation or any move towards the sort of competitive, you know, uh, winnowing towards perfection that we're supposed to get out of the, uh, out of the competitive capitalist economy is in treats 
and honestly, specifically, spicy chicken sandwiches. There's so many different ones. There's so many ones you can try. So it really does feel like this is a machine designed to make chicken sandwiches. Not to, not to sustain people nutritionally. No, 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 no. Just to make the chicken sandwiches. So yeah, you have a situation where the last people left are these, uh, these muskite freaks who walled themselves off from humanity and tried to merge with their computers before, you know, a dog came along and gnawed the fucking plug out of the wall or whatever. And then they just, burp. and then just the last uh, expressions of the machine algorithm, which has never been able to get beyond the profit motive uh, and, and uh, the consumer society that it is premised on. And you're just shooting out spicy chicken sandwiches. Well, the people left try to scratch something new out of it. And thing is, that's, to me, that's, that's enough hope to keep going. That's enough hope to obviate any argument about what's the point. Because obviously, if you're alive and keep living, you don't really believe that. You just have decided to ascribe to your, the most uh, narrowly uh, selfish idea of why. You know, uh, pile up. Pleasurable experiences, basically. Uh, of course, you know, that doesn't work. And it destabilizes over time, and you have to, you know, keep going more extreme in order to get the same experience. Uh, but, you know, for most people, if they're in, the early, in, the, in their, you know, adult early adulthood, they're definitely, they're not anywhere near that. You know, they're still very much able to uh, scrape together enough dopamine to keep going. But, you know, maybe there's more. And the uh, to me, the, the fact that, you know, there are always going to be people, they're always going to be trying to live, and uh, the, the, the grinding gears of material history are going to continually disrupt their relationship to their environment in such a way that, Settled delusions, settled uh, um, malpractices, social malpractices cannot be sustained. And they will eventually uh, be destroyed. Without any revolution. Like, that's the thing. You, You don't have to... Yeah, like there is no revolutionary context in the current moment. That there's, we don't have revolutionary subjects because the working class is no longer a subject of history as it was uh, in the 20th century. That means that someone else, some other human formation is going to have to do that work of cobbling all this shit together, of, of taking the technological capacity f- uh, uh, that we've accumulated, which is the real uh, legacy of, you know, that building of uh, forces of production is, is technological capacity. Uh, and wielding it collectively, 
in dialogue with the natural world rather than in sort of a ritualized denial of its existence. Okay, so that's that chapter. Kind of a short one. Uh, Self-contained. The next chapter for next week, probably Friday, maybe Thursday, we'll see, uh, is, I think this is going to be a a spicy and interesting one. Uh, Chapter 10, Why the State Has No Origin, The Humble Beginnings of Sovereignty, Bureaucracy, and Politics. Now we're going to, I think, finally going to get to GrabGrow making an actual argument for, well, all right, if agriculture didn't cause uh, human hierarchical social relations and property relations, and urban life didn't do it, if both those things are compatible with democracy in a real sense, well, then where the fuck did it go? Why did the, why did the kings take over? So uh, this will be interesting, because I think now we're finally going to get to a uh, to a claim we can sink our teeth into. Dawn of Everything by GrabGrow is the book, for those asking. Chapter 10 for next week. History is happening is the thing, folks. And when history is happening, all of your, all of the rosary uh, worrying theoretical shit that you spend your time with kind of goes away. And uh, the question becomes vital. The problem is, is that if you're relatively, uh, you know, like, as we said, history is happening, but of course, not evenly, not equally distributed. They're, the waves are, are, are buckling through the thing, but they're, they're being felt to different intensities in different places. So, like, we can feel the wave coming, but what do we do with ourselves? Not in an abstract sense, because that can never lead to anything. That can always just be avoidance, really, of the question, because there's nothing we can do at that level. But we have to do something every day of our goddamn lives. And we're all in awareness that our relationship to our material world is not stable. And that that means we have to act. But the more we phrase this in, well, what can I do politically to change the trajectory of this? I mean, that is really an abdication. And I'll admit completely that, like, I am, that's why I care. I pre- I pay attention to politics, certainly. That's why my gaze first cast itself to the political level when I was unsatisfied with my life and the trajectory of everyone's life as I could see it was, well, who can I vote for or, you know, what door can I knock on to, to make this uh, change good? I think what we have found is that while we can still act on that level, we can vote, we can knock on doors, we can do that, we sure should should not invoke, devote too much time intellectually or especially and even more importantly emotionally to it because the real questions are closer to home. But the answers are close to home too, which means that talking about this level of, of you know, praxis is very difficult. Uh, in the social media realm. Because as I've said before, like you're constrained. You can't talk about political action that might be like meaningful. Like forget if it's going to actually do anything. 
existentially meaningful in a way that voting and rooting for a party just can't be uh, because it's not fucking legal. And even the stuff that is political, like what election, like elections and who to support and what door to knock on, the ones that matter are happening at the local level, at the very grassroots level, which means discussion of them in the social media realm will always be flattened to be about questions that are not applicable. Generalized concepts and abstractions that have nothing to do with the questions that the people actually working on this specific campaign or what have it have you have to answer. Like uh, the Amazon uh, workers who uh, organized their Staten Island facility, like they, the, what they pointed to when, when describing like uh, where they got their ideas for how to organize and, and, and where they got, you know, the, uh, where they found their uh, priorities, it was not online. It was fucking William Foster's organizing in the steel sector from the 1930s. Because you got a bunch of people at a fucking uh, a warehouse, essentially a modern-day logistical factory, who aren't allowed to go to the bathroom and can't pick when they work. If you're outside of that process, if you're a politically engaged person on the internet, how are you supposed to intervene in those questions? You're not having to go to, not go to the bathroom. You're not having your uh, work determined by others in that specific way. The only thing you can bring to the question are abstractions, are, are, are ideas of like abstract principles. Like I see after the Amazon uh, announcement, after the vote, people were like, like, I can't wait for them to be anti-imperialist, you know? It's like, they very well might end up, you know, radicalized into, into you know, a, a anti-imperialist uh, praxis where they're like, doing solidarity strikes with, you know, people in other countries and stuff. They might have that happen, but it'll only be after they get fucking bathroom breaks, for Christ's sake. If you, if you start with anti-imperialism, which is what a lot of people want to do because they tell themselves it's the most important thing, and in, in one sense it is, but in terms of a, an individual American citizen's ability to affect it, the least important thing, which is why it's so fixated and fetishized by some. Because they have no responsibility over it. Because there's nothing they can do about it, really. What's going to determine if they decide to do anti-imperialism is not going to be that a lot of enough of them read a post about it or saw a meme it'll be because of other conditions occurring it'll be because of material conditions changing and radicalization occurring in other sectors that they then would connect to 
And I honestly see a situation where an Amazon union decides, you know what? It's worth it. It's worth challenging uh, the law and our bosses and risking what we have and, and, and the gains we have made through collective bargaining to make this international stand. I can see them making that decision, but it would be because of conditions that I cannot imagine or anticipate. Conditions created by the rapid deterioration and transformation of material conditions. And then people might apply some stuff they saw in, uh, in the ether to the question, but what's going to decide their answer is not going to be theoretical. It's going to be their recognized self-interest, whether or not they adhere it to other people in other lands. And I can see that happening because the thing that prevents it from happening is faith that this order can provide something. And that faith is being dissolved before our very fucking eyes. What do you think the, uh, uh, everybody going uh, absolute feral right, uh, means? I mean, yes, it's not, not because we don't have politics, it's nihilistic. But it speaks to a greater lack of any faith in any institution. And that means that, like, the calculus that buys off labor traditionally in the United States uh, also changes. Because like you like the, the, the context where business unionism overtook the American uh, labor movement. I mean, obviously you have, you know, the, the state jihad of the second red scare that like actually put a social and uh, professional cost to adhering to, you know, uh, radicalism that didn't exist during the popular front uh, era of World War I or World War II. Um, but also the fact that this American state, this, you know, capitalist behemoth, that yes, had collapsed under its own contradictions uh, in the 20s, in the late 20s, early 30s, uh, had risen like a fucking phoenix and provided a vision of utopian horizons. Of course, for white workers, that goes without saying, but I guess you still got to say it. Uh, and that that had a huge impact. But, but that's... I would say that if you want to understand how, why our political tribe, our political uh, class is so manifestly incompetent, like at their jobs, you know, like they're, they're doing a bad job of their jobs in addition to, you know, being corrupt and doing, because the state does have, an interest in maintaining some leverage vis-a-vis -vis private industry, you know? Because from the long term, the state is necessary for both. So it is in the best interest of the state to provide a certain degree of functionality. But it does not. And one of the big reasons is, is that even the most sincere people, 
in governance have not and cannot process the real implications of declining living standards over the last 40 years because they came into politics, all of them, because they're all a million years old, in the, uh, and their understanding of political institutions, where uh, political authority is derived, all of the like propagandized ideological stuff, the, the, the infrastructure of their mental world that define things like their self-interest, their understanding of their relationship to their country and their party and the governing structures and the state were defined by that post-war bonanza. And they, of course, because they have only gone up and up and up, have still have the same relationship to those institutions that uh, they did when they were younger. But that an entire generation is now coming a lot, uh, uh, has now lived where those, um, those systems of legitimacy, patterns of legitimate, uh, rituals of legitimation have just been drained of everything. I mean, they really did cut the copper out the copper wiring out of the building. And they can't, they don't know that and they can't know that. They cannot process it. And that's why the Democrats are just watching as uh, the Republican Party like coalesces into this uh, uh, counter, like this hostile internal regime that has fully assimilated the uh, corruption and uh, insufficiency and worthlessness of our institutions and, there, and is fully willing to abolish them and has not done anything, even though it is absolutely in their power to uh, minimize uh, the worst of their you know, designs on the institutions. Because they think everybody sees these things these structures, these rules, these symbols, and sees them as legitimate because they see them as legitimate. And the asymmetry in part comes from the fact that, yes, most Republicans and certainly political class Republicans are rich, just like Democrats are, and have benefited from uh, you know, the uh, imperial state at its apogee and are still hanging around on, on the fat of it even as it's declining. So they shouldn't be alienated materially from, uh, uh, from, you know, the modern state. But they have been systematically alienated from it culturally in a way liberals aren't. So they feel like they're losing even though they've been winning their whole lives. Because in order to stabilize itself, in order to integrate the new demographics of capitalism that needed to be brought into its system, the new consumers that needed to be appealed to, capitalism had to adopt a, uh, a formal uh, structure of tolerance, a culture of tolerance, which pleases, like, pleases, uh, Liberals to death, liberal elites, these like Arminians, 
these little uh, de- these little descendants of the of pilgrims, these little freaky Calvinists who need to uh, believe themselves to be good people, to believe themselves to be worthy of election, uh, and and for what good people means, uh, acting with charity in the world and acceptance and all these good values in the world. They, they've they been working, you know, overtime for this for the last 60 years, and so they're happy to see it, and they're cheering it on. And that's why, since they're not materially or culturally alienated from the culture and its superstructures, they still think that everybody around them has the same reverence for their institutions. Meanwhile, through the looking glass, the reactionary right ruling class, uh, the the old line Puritans, the real, the, the true Calvinists, the ones who, the ones who uh, executed John Oberfeldt or whatever the fuck his name was, uh, in 1860 or in 16, what, 28, 21, I think 21, right before the 12 year cease, 12 year uh, truce was ended in the Netherlands. Uh, who believe that you are elect because you are elect, and that therefore hierarchies are naturally created, therefore God inspired, have been steadily alienated from the cultural space for the last 40, 50 years. And so in alliance with people farther down on the totem pole than them who are both culturally and materially alienated from the system, they will uh, do their best to uh, knock it down. All right, I think that's enough for today. Next week, as I said, chapter 10. People are, apparently it's, your people are doing a bit when you're asking what the name of the book is. Dawn of Everything. But why are they alienated? Don't they have it all? Everyone in a class society is subject to a fundamental alienation, like a, a, a split within the self. Because we relate to strangers through a veil of either, and, you, and not either or, in a combination of both, resentment and uh, pity. Guilt, basically. We are uneasy with our fellow man, and can't be otherwise, because we look him in the eye and we know. We either know that they that we toil for their benefit or they toil for ours. And that has to be that psychic break has to be soothed somehow, distracted from, rationalized. And our cultural rituals seek to rationalize them and affirm them and validate them. But it doesn't go away. And all of the travails we go through life happen in this context. And the pain that we feel, the resentment, the alienation that is like 
processed otherwise, you know, through interpersonal lens, all is also being reflected through this prism as well. Uh, and so even the people at the very top of the totem pole are fundamentally miserable and alienated. They'll tell you themselves how unhappy they are. It's just a question of where they put that unhappiness. Liberal, rich, liberal people are going to put, put it at themselves. That's why they're all in therapy. That's why they're all fixated on, on perfecting the self through uh, acts of charity, yes, and political virtue, but also self-cleansing and healing and, and uh, fucking yoga and, and uh, unguents. Goop exists for these people. And so they try to purify themselves of the thing that, that they feel, the, the, that fundamental breach. Conservatives, the right reactionaries, blame the other, the outsider, and seek to punish them and subjugate them for this feeling. At least the ones who do politics, that's what their politics psychologically is, is powered by, of course, what it's really powered by is their self-interest, which is, of course, all this stuff, but tied to the maintenance of their material position, which is what they seek first and foremost to, uh, to protect. And here's the thing. And here's the reason that – so here's the situation. We've got these two halves of a ruling class, right? And they're both operating out of these completely distinct reality uh, worlds. And so this is a clash of ideas, right? And, and when we see politics, it is this idealist clash. But what is happening while they're legislating and, and, and uh, speculate, uh, while people are legislating and debating and, uh, and organizing along these, uh, these camps, they're also seeing to their material interests. And while the cultural stuff they do is in conflict, and in fact that conflict defines politics, the stuff they do for their material interests, aligns in the same direction at a deep enough level. Like their sectoral conflict, once again, whoever, you know, has more money, more influence, maybe some better lobbyists win there. But at the baseline level, it's all aligned, and there's nothing there to conflict with it. There's nothing there to challenge it. Working class used to challenge it, and that's why the politics of the 20th century were the way they were. But it's no longer there to provide a challenge. And so it goes un challenged and it as conditions deteriorate and it cannot adapt to those conditions to secure the uh, legitimacy of the systems they just get undermined and destroyed and the people in the political realm fight even harder to try to win to try to resist the, the the pull towards oblivion or at the very least punish those responsible but the whole time their actions are deepening the whole And that is why I really do believe that the challenge to this thing will come outside of it, will become, will come in the realms that have been surrendered to nature by capitalism. And that only in that space where uh, even the technological structures of compulsion are no longer running, uh, can people start building something different, something that maybe 
maybe brings together all of the necessary progressive developments, both technologically and culturally and ideologically and conceptually, and, and brings them together. And the thing that's going to bind it together is going to be some new spiritual conception. I am very convinced of that. What it will be, I don't know. Zen Sunniism? Who knows? A spiritual answer is going to be a cope for material realities. Well, yes, but like if material realities get bad enough that you can't depend on you know the supply chain to, to give you your nutrient slurry, when you have to live on your own, then coping becomes surviving. Coping becomes organizing. Coping becomes living collectively to literally cope with your conditions, i.e. survive them and perhaps thrive in them. It'll be cool, whatever it is. And it'll probably rule the galaxy in like 10,000 years, 20,000 years. Hell, maybe 100,000 years. Don't get, don't, you, know, you don't want to get ahead of yourself. Hell, sometimes I think it's going to be based in Juche. Because, like, what polity in the world is best suited to deal with, like, really, really bad climate change? Like, say climate change is as bad as your worst predictions of it. And obviously not, like, the thing where we turn into Venus because – but, like, where it, like, fundamentally disrupts all of our uh, – uh, it ends the world as we know it, basically. And everything gets resolved – gets brought down to uh, barbarism. What will be the most resilient polity? How is it not North Korea? I mean, where it is, it's probably not going to get the worst of climate change, right? Pretty far north. It's not like Cuba, God bless Cuba, but they're cooked. They're fucked. Uh, North Korea up there, the little armpit, snows. And they've got this, you know, uh, this hermit kingdom up there that under, like, a, in a real crisis, I mean, hell, it's not like those people have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, addictions to treats. So that, that could like alienate them from everything as uh, as real uh, hunger sets in. They've survived horrifying famines before, including in the early nineties. Uh, maybe those emerge as like the one of the few uh, areas of, of uh, human organization to make to sustain itself to emerge from the like equilibrium that eventually is established, and then. They hook up with other people who have survived individually, and those other people are able to, uh, you know, interact with the North Koreans, and and uh, their ideas are like changed by relationship and contact with these new people. But like their shared interest in cooperating to survive works through the system and basically does the job of resolving political conflicts. And so then, you know, the, the, the human, uh, the synthesized human civilization 
that does conquer you know, the biome in the sense of uh, creating a stable, technologically uh, mediated equilibrium with it, then conquers the stars. I don't know. Sometimes I think my money is on uh, cephalopods. Like, it's not even human beings. It's intelligent, uh, it's intelligent octopi. But even if it's, even if it's octopuses, it's still us. Okay. Maybe crows. That would also be cool. All right. Next week with chapter 10. Bye-bye.